Well, it's Thursday, January 15th, 2015. This is the Hermetic Hour, and I'm your host, Poe Grunion. And tonight, we present a review and a reprise of my own writing career as a novelist, short story writer, and screenwriter. Now, after three years in in the Army, most of it in Special Forces, I... Uh, I started off in 1965 with a novel called Night Jump Cuba. And I thought of that uh, with Commando X on the same theme in 1967. And uh, a series of underwater adventure stories in Argosy Magazine. And uh, then, of course, uh, uh, feeling my oats as a writer, I took off for Hollywood and... um, and I had a short stint as a, as a budding screenwriter uh, working with the Swanson Agency, which at that time was a, was the top agency on Sunset Strip. And uh, and then, of course, uh, things did not work out there, and then I ended up getting a real job as a designer and a technical illustrator for Shelby American, you know, the, 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 uh, the guy that did the Cobra. And on to a career as an industrial artist. And eventually I started publishing my own fiction uh, with a, a novel called Drill Master Science Fiction in 2001. And followed that uh, with a, one of my old adventure novels redone as, as From the Tower of Darkness in 2002. So if you... If you enjoy macho action adventure stories, or if you ever have enjoyed them, uh, then you can tune in and find out what old Frater Thavion writes about other than magic. Oh, okay, that said. Now, um, uh, let's go back, you know, to the to the to where I got started in this adventure story writing thing. I think, in a way... Um, I got to credit my dad, my father, uh, with uh, getting me started on this. He he used to tell me stories when I was a kid. And by the way, he uh, he he was an attorney, but he ended up uh, in the army uh, and uh, on MacArthur's staff eventually over in the Philippines. And and and, uh, and so he filled me full of war stories, on, uh, you know, both during the war and after the war. <laughs> And it's almost like I, like I, I, I think listening to all his stories, I, I feel like I tramped over all of those islands in the South Pacific with him. Uh, but what he had, he started way back when I was, you know, well, five, six years old, telling me these stories about a character, an, an, an adventurer that he called Ben Smith. And uh, he had, Ben Smith was a kind of an Indiana Jones kind of character that my dad had created. And he made up these stories, and he used to tell them to me. And uh, uh, they were really, really imaginative. And and Ben Smith was kind of, like I say, he was kind of an Indiana Jones kind of character. But also he was was, uh, something like uh, um, um, Paul Bunyan or or Stormalog or all these various... uh, uh, natural, natural heroes that we used to have, uh, you know, in folklore. Uh, and I remembered those those stories, and and uh, and then of course when Dad came home, uh, he uh, 
he had all kinds of stories about his adventures in the South Pacific, and 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 uh, and you know that he that he told me over and over again, and and uh, even had pictures of the of the of the savage natives in New Guinea and all of that brought back, and he brought back a lot of uh, native native spears and bows and arrows and all kinds of stuff. I think uh, I think that when I, I eventually became a uh, you know got a master's in cultural anthropology, I think it probably a lot of a lot of my dad's uh, 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 his adventures uh, kind of led in that direction. But anyway. Uh, after uh, uh, when I was about 16 years old, and this was, of course, at well after World War II, uh, I started to write my first adventure novel. <laughs> I still have it, by the way, in a whole bunch of composition books written in pencil uh, that I that I treasure. And uh, I remember I, I was so serious about doing this that, that I went down to the library and I did research on on the, you know for the for the novel and. Uh, and I called it the, the the title of the novel was the Pirates of Borneo, and it was based, you know, to a lot of to a large degree on on stuff my dad had told me. Uh, these uh, it was, and it was treasure hunting, and and the, the pirates were, of course were were uh, uh, typical melee pirates with a a lot of Borneo dyaks, you know, and what have you, and and. Uh, <clears throat> So I dug into old National Geographics and in the library did all the research on this thing. And the idea was that these guys were after a treasure, a B-25 bomber that, that had gone down in a river way up in, in Borneo with a, a full of Japanese gold. And uh, so this was, a, this was the, the sort of thing I was writing when I was 16 years old. Well, um of course, you know, as I say, it's it, I never published it, but but it, it, but uh, then when I was in high school, uh, we I got into I really got into science fiction, and of course, uh, first the first my first science fiction uh, uh, fascination was Edgar Rice Burroughs and in, in, in his uh, John Carter stories, and uh, I just really from those I I went into the Shaver mystery. And uh, I think that those of you who followed this program and know something about uh, about uh, you know the, uh, especially our film Beyond the Myriad, uh, you're aware of, of of my interest in the Shaver mystery. It started when I was a kid, and uh, Shaver was an imitator of Edgar Rice Burroughs as far as style was concerned, so that fitted right on in. And uh, and there was a lot of very mysterious. Um, uh, references to ancient uh, civilizations in Shaver and what have you. So uh, that fitted right in. Now, I, uh, when I was in, in high school, we had a science fiction club, like so many uh, uh, kids did in those days. We had a science fiction club, and the, um, the, the mentor of our science fiction club, the guy that, that, that was, was really... Uh, uh, we all looked up to was uh, a a uh, GI uh, Lynn Carter, who um, lived in St. Pete. His father worked for the city. So did my father. They, my, they both, both, both my father and his father both worked for the city. And uh, the uh, and Lynn Carter was uh, an ardent science fiction and fantasy fan, and 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 he was. 
you know, he's writing letters to all the science fiction magazines and what have you, and and he was really, really on his way to becoming a science fiction writer himself. And so he was um, he was our mentor, sort of the guru of our of our science fiction club. And um, uh, what happened was is that he eventually went to New York and. After many uh, adventures in New York, he eventually—I mean—he started selling his own his own science fiction fantasy adventure stories. Uh, he had a character called Fongor of Lemuria, which uh, uh, was was fairly popular, kind of a kind of combination of Tarzan and Conan the Barbarian. Uh, and uh, uh, Lynn eventually became the editor fantasy editor for Ballantine Books and and they're the ones that published Tolkien and uh and all of the old classic fantasies. Uh Lynn was 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 a, a scholar of imaginative literature. He was and he literally he literally was the was the guiding light of the fantasy romantic rebellion that uh that, that you know that we were well, it's called a rebellion. Let's, let's just say a revival of romantic fantasy literature that that uh, exploded, basically along with the Tolkien books. And uh, Lynn was a you know when he when he really when he really put his put his mind to it, he was a he was a terrific writer. But uh, must you know a lot of his stuff that he did is kind of pot boiler kind of stuff. Uh, but uh, always entertaining and. Uh, and and I kept in touch with Lynn. I kept in touch with him. Now, when I, in fact, when I was in the army, uh, it's kind of when I was in the army uh, and and in OCS at Fort Benning, um, uh, Lynn at that time, Lynn was in New York and had already uh, gotten his, he's starting to get his Thunder stuff out, and he had written a, a big long poem about this belly dancer girlfriend he had and it was very erotic. The poem was really, really erotic. And uh and little and, and Lynn, Lynn's uh Lynn's writing was, you know, uh he he was uh he could he could tell a he could tell a good story and and, and, a, and a lusty one too. So he had written this this very erotic poem about this belly dancing girlfriend of his and sent it to me when I was in OCS. Of course, he'd been out of the army for quite a while, but uh, uh, I I got it, opened it up, looked at it right quick, and stuck it under my. Uh, I, I was going to go stick it under my desk cover, which isn't a good idea, uh, but but I instead of that, this uh, friend of mine, uh, I won't mention his name because uh, I don't want to embarrass him, but this young candidate came running by and. A friend of mine, I said, "Hey, I just got a, I just got a letter, a letter and a poem from from Lynn Carter. Yeah, you, know, you want to read it? And, and I'll I'll pick it up when I get back out of the field." And he said, "Sure." So he took it. Oh boy. Anyway, the uh, he stuck it under his dust cover in in and 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 the attack officers came by and did a snap inspection and they pulled this thing out from under his dust cover. And they started reading it, and they realized that it was rather erotic. And so, at dinner that night, 
you know, in the mess hall. They made this poor candidate get up on the table, stand up on the table, and read this poem that Lynn Carter had had written to everybody, to all of the troops, all of the candidates, eating in the mess hall. Oh, boy. And, of course, he was, the guy was so embarrassed, and, and it was... Yeah, they just they, they just literally destroyed him with this this thing, and of course, you know, and I never got the poem back. Well, it, but years and years and years and years later, I managed to I managed to find it on the internet. Thank God, <laughs> so I still have it. it but well, it was, that was a that was a shame. And uh, however, uh, the. Uh, so I got out there. I got out of the army, went back to college, and finished up uh, at Florida State, and I got myself a. Uh, bachelor's degree in in commercial art, which you know I eventually translated into a, into a working career. But uh, I went back to um, I went back to uh, St. Pete from from Tallahassee, uh, and uh, and started a, a special forces A team in the reserve, and. Uh, and you know uh, that that worked out very very well. We had a very active special forces reserve program, and uh, and you know we do active duty anti dutra in the in the in the in the, in the summertime and, and go back up to Fort Bragg and do various things. Uh, and uh, and so when I got back there, I started writing my first uh, my first uh, adventure novel, and. This, what this was, uh, uh, this is uh, this is just this, this turns into quite an adventure story in its own right. What happened <laughs> is I had a friend from college, Florida State, who uh, got a job in Los Alamos. He got a job with the government of Los Alamos. You know where you all know where Los Alamos. That that's that's the city where they the, the city on top of the mesa. In in uh, out out the southwest where they where they built the atomic bomb, you know the little boy and fat man. And in fact, they just recently did a TV series on on it, which is very very good. But uh, I actually went out there and visited my friend Alan uh, in Los Alamos. And uh, now this is really uh, this is uh, this is quite a drive out there, and you got up there and. Top of that uh, that 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 uh, mesa, and uh, and visited Alan, and and he took me for a tour of Los Alamos laboratories, and what I I got I picked up a brochure project that had been at the time they had got got it started, it it was highly highly classified, and I and when I tell you what it was, you realize why, it was. It was a project where they were going to build an atomic rocket engine. This is what they were working on, and they had it. What they the way they were going to do this thing is they're going to have a magnetic pinch, and, and a magnetic pinch to control an actual atomic reaction. And they called this thing the Sherwood Drive. Uh, now uh, they had brochures on it because it had since they'd abandoned the project and 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 they had. And they, uh, you know, it was declassified. They, they abandoned it, and they printed up brochures on us. I think I still have the brochures uh, somewhere buried around. But I thought 
when I when I went back for, back to to Florida after visiting Alan up there, I uh, what a terrific idea for a story that. Uh, at that time, we were having the Cuban problem, and I, you know, I, way back before I even got been in the army, I had gone down and visited Cuba, and uh, and so I, so and I had Cuban friends, uh, and uh, and yet, in those days, all middle class Cubans, especially if they're going to be professionals, all went to Florida State University or University of Miami or Florida or FSU. They all did. And so naturally, I had Cuban friends, and and uh, so I got back. I got back to uh, St. Pete, and I started working on this story. And the story was to become Night Jump Cuba. Now, the uh, the uh, idea was that you know that the Sherwood Drive would be launched uh, from from Cape Kennedy or Canaveral, as we called it in those days, and. Uh, it would be launched, and and to to test it, you know, out out in orbit, uh, and to see if it worked. And um, then, what would happen if if the Russians were to misdirect it somehow or other? So instead of coming down, instead of coming down and and being recovered and and out in the uh, out in the Caribbean where they usually are out in the ocean where they usually do it. Instead of that, they would get it to drop into Cuba. Well, that was a quite a, quite a good idea for a you know for a, a story. And I had and uh, so I started working on this, and uh, I conceived of having this sort of thing happen, and then uh, it would happen, and then there would I would have a CIA. Special Forces CIA team over in the Bahamas that would, uh, with a with a character of mine who I based on one of my friends in Special Forces when I was on active duty, uh, a guy I called Tiger Malone, and uh, he was a sort of a big John Wayne type that that um, uh, would be the head of this team of operators that would that would be dropped into Cuba to actually just. If they couldn't recover this thing, they'd have to destroy it. And that would be the idea, to keep it out of the hands of the Soviets. So that was the idea of the story. And uh, uh, so I worked on it and worked on it. And I had it, actually, by the time I got uh, done with it, it was a 250,000-word novel. It was the size of a Tom Clancy, you know, one of these big doorstopper throwers. and you know, I, I I discovered I was working for Ringling Brothers Circus at the time, and building props and costumes and what have you, and uh, and through them I found a, an agent or or a talent scout for Doubleday, a lady who 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 uh, uh, put me in touch with a with a friend of hers in New York, uh, who who would be my agent and take me on for this thing. And so we got this book to uh, to Pyramid, which was a which was a paperback publication house in New York, Pyramid Books, and they they liked it, but they said, "Well, it's way too long. These kind of things, these kind of things can only be sixty five thousand words long. So we like your story. Can you cut it down to sixty five thousand words?" Oh boy. 
Well, I, uh, I said, you all naturally want to get published. And so I said, yes, okay, I will. And I did. And that was that's something when you got a two hundred and fifty thousand word book and you and you have to cut it cut down cut it down to a third of what oh boy that was tough but I did it and uh, and they published it in nineteen sixty five it came out and uh, and oh boy and no sooner did it get out and all than Bacardi Rum Corporation wanted to wanted to finance it for a film and. Uh, well, boy, that would have been really something. And and unfortunately, my agent in New York ruined that deal. And uh, I, uh, I don't know whether I want to actually describe quite how he ruined it, but he did. He he completely ruined it. And uh, so I lost the chance to get Night Jump Cuba made into a film. However, that wasn't the end of my adventures on Night Jump Cuba because um, – Pretty shortly thereafter, uh, my special forces team in in St. Pete, uh, weekend warriors, you know, uh, I was training these guys in in, in demolitions and and uh, and in even in underwater demolition. I even I even trained I I even uh, uh, did that, but because. I had been, and I'm going to get into this in a, in a, in a, when we get down the rail, but when I was on active duty in Special Forces, um, I was a demolition specialist, and they sent me to Key West, Florida, for underwater swimmer school training. Now, this is not, this is not frogmen. This is not UDT. UDT is there. Their courses at Little Creek, and uh, fortunately, I didn't. I didn't have to do that because. But where the underwater swimmer school is um, is down in Key West, but um, uh, Little Creek is a. It, that, that's all. Just most of that is just physical conditioning, and fortunately, uh, they said, "Well, these guys are already special forces, so we'll just you know send them to Key West." And and, and yeah, that's a relief. I wouldn't want to go through that Little Creek thing, but anyway. Um, so I, I had, um, um, you know, I, I had, I got, I, I got a, 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 a scuba diving certificate from Naval Underwater Swimmer School, which was good. Anyway, uh, Night Jump Cuba got published and, and that, then shortly thereafter, my, uh, special forces team gets sent to Jungle Warfare School in Panama, all of us. So off we go to Jungle Warfare School in Panama and got there and and um, went through that. Part of what happens in Jungle Warfare School when you're when you're going through as a as a trainee, you're going through as you know, as a student, you get captured in the end of the of the um the, this curriculum you got to do various things you go through the jungle and you and you take an airdrop and that's a lot of fun you 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 take an aerial resupply drop and and you, you go through jungle navigation and various things but at the end of this you get captured and you get captured and you get um and you get uh put through their their how to survive being captured and and keep your mouth shut and whatever and and you know how to how to how to try to survive an enemy prison camp kind of thing. It's a 
Uh, you want to get some idea of, that, of what that training is like, take a look at a film called G.I. Jane and a lot of the stuff that they show her going through in, in that uh, in that same venue is what the kind of stuff they put us through. But, uh, you know, they they had us out uh, and, and uh, stark naked in in wire in barbed wire cages and pouring uh, sugar water on us and sprinkling fire ants on us and all kinds of stuff like this. Uh, but finally, uh, what happened to me was that I had I had a friend. I, I thought he was a friend <laughs> who lived down the street from me in St. Pete, who uh, was one of these uh, detached service kind of guys uh, in special forces. Uh, who had run a path at Lau Company over in Laos, and in other words, what happened to these guys, these these uh, these kind of operators, what they do is they put them on detached service to Ace Tomato Company, and I, I think you know what that is. But anyway, so then then uh, then they they run you know, their little secret wars and what have you, uh, and then they go after they get done with it, they go back on to, on their regular resume their regular service in the army. And this happened, this works out all the time. But anyway, my friend Mike, and uh, who, as I say, had run a path at Lao Company in, in Laos, and there were rumors that he was the model for for Colonel Kurtz in Apocalypse Now. But I, I I doubt that though, because I think that that really did come from Tower of Darkness. But uh, but Mike was running this prison camp in Panama. This, this where they were where they were harassing us uh, as part of our training, and Mike was running it. Now, Mike knew about, and I didn't tell him. He, he knew about this from, from from other sources. He knew about Night Jump Cuba, and and uh, and so they got me down in the. They had this. This is an old Spanish fort that they did this thing in, and this old Spanish fort, and, and it had a dungeon. I mean, a real dungeon in it, and water all over the floor, and miserable. And here I am, stark naked, and they got me down to sit on a number ten can, upside down. That's very uncomfortable to to sit on a number ten can, you know, even with the, the you know the the lid end on it. It's still it's very uncomfortable. And shined a big Klieg light in my face, and I'm sitting there with my back against this slimy wall, and and. Uh, and Mike and this and this other this other spook are interrogating me on Night Jump Cuba, and and then the first thing they inform me is that and and I, they're they're saying they're they're saying Captain Runyon, did you realize that the Sherwood Drive had been reclassified? And I'm just looking at them, and I but I'm thinking, oh my God, you know. Because hell, I have brochures on this darn thing, you know, and when I when when I and uh, and then they start, you know, all this round of questions. Well, you wrote I Jump Cuba, didn't you? And of course, it's it, it's it's my pen name, Polk Runyon, and I'm just sitting there saying, I don't know what you're talking about, and uh, you know, yeah, this name, rank, date of birth. serial number, I don't know and I don't remember. And they just kept this up and kept it up and kept it up and kept it up. And uh, I don't know really that I don't know to this day, and and I couldn't get Mike to tell me later just how much they really, how much they really uh, wanted to know about you know whether or not they really were upset about the night jump night jump Cuba. And I think that 
I think that the business about telling you that the Sherwood Drive had been reclassified was probably there. That was probably part of their little scenario. But anyway, it was quite a it, 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 it was quite an adventure, and uh, and you know, and I managed to just sit there and say, it's name, rank, service number. I don't know and I don't remember, and and and, and I kept it up and kept it up and kept it up. So I guess I passed the course, but. Uh, in that respect, anyway. Uh, so that was so. I jumped Cuba, came back to bite me on that. Now the next novel that I did, um, Commando X, and I did that one out in California. That was 1967. Uh, um, that one uh, was a, was a kind of a sequel to Night Jump Cuba, and what it was was uh, a. Um, uh, I had another character, another special forces character called Ruth Bruckman, and. Uh, Bruckman uh, had a Cuban friend who was in the in the resistance against Castro, and Commando X was his commando unit, and they had it was they had a unit at that time there was that sort of thing, and there, there was resistance against the against Castro, and they had these commando units Alpha sixty six, and uh, and Commando L, and I called my group Commando X, and uh, or Commando Aikis, and. The uh, in this book, I wanted to have a character. I wanted to have a character who was a pilot for a, a C forty six pilot for a uh, for a little cargo airline, which would actually be a front for Ace Tomato. So consequently, uh, uh, I, I needed a character, a pilot, really. And I thought what I would do is I would. Take a character whom I had I didn't know him I'd never met him but there was a there was a character over in Vietnam uh, and of course I, I didn't I don't remember whether I heard this from from uh, my friend Mike or, or not but yeah I think I did but there was a character over in, in Vietnam called Shower Shoe Wilson now Shower Shoe they called him Shower Shoe because he had crashed he was an Air America pilot and he had crashed back behind enemy lines about three or four times and walked out in, in, in shower clogs, shorts and shower clogs. That's all he, he wore. So he got the nickname Shower Shoe. And uh, so I decided to take Shower Shoe and, and, and take him, get, him out of, uh, get him out of Vietnam and bring him over to the, to the Caribbean and have him uh, flying for actual Seminole, which, which, would, which would be, as I say, uh, uh, one of these uh, one of these front companies for uh, for uh, uh, you know the Christians in action and uh, and so uh, I, I created this character of, uh, of shower shoe and and the book came out uh, I found out that the State Department our State Department did not want to antagonize. The Castro regime at that time—that was the policy. I, I, I guess they—I guess they'd given up on their exploding cigars and all the rest of that stuff with Castro. So uh, they didn't want it. The book—the book did not get distributed in the United States. It didn't. But they dumped thousands of copies over in Vietnam, <laughs> and Shower Shoe was still over there. So. What do you know? I get I get a nasty letter from Shower Shoe saying he's going to sue me, <laughs> and so I wrote him back and I said, "Oh, come on now, you're a legend in your own time. Now, you know, let's don't 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 
Don't sue me. Just come back. Just come back, and 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 and, and we'll write a book together." And so we became good friends as a result of that. And, and I carried on quite a conversation with him. Now, Shower Shoe, unfortunately, did not make it back. He, he, I guess his, I guess his Shower Shoes didn't get him out the last time, and he, he bought the farm. But, but he was, but he was immortalized in a film. Film is Air America, and and he was played by by. Uh, you know, by Mel Gibson. So, if uh, when if you next time you see your America, you can you you can just you know realize that that's good old shower shoe. So, uh, uh, so Clando X uh, was real popular over in Vietnam. In fact, you know Dave Finn, my friend Dave Finn, read it over there, um, but you couldn't hardly get it here. Now, used copies of it are still available here. So I don't know why. I guess maybe they came back with. It came back with a lot of the guys from Vietnam. But uh, meanwhile, that I, while I was doing all of this, I, I had a series of short stories running in Argosy Magazine. And these were underwater stories. I've been a scuba diver ever since, oh gosh, ever since before I went to uh, before I, I went in the Army. I was a scuba diver and, and a spear fisherman and, and a sailor. And uh, so... Uh, I had been working up a a uh, uh, working my way into Argosy Magazine. Now, let me explain something about Argosy Magazine for those that you those of you who don't know about it. Argosy Magazine was one of the original pulp magazines from way back in the 1920s and 30s. It just survived all the way through the war and uh, World War II, and and then after World War II, it was it went uh, uh, from being a pulp magazine to being a men's magazine in the in the eleven by you know in the you know eight and a half by eleven uh, format. Whereas before that, you know, it had been in that that shorter, that smaller format of the pulp magazines. Well, when it went, it became a men's magazine. It was full featured, you know, with articles about uh, about uh, hunting and articles about about stuff that interests. Guys, it was still very, very much masculine focus, but they still maintained their fiction. So uh, um, I had been told by by a creative a creative uh, writing professor I had in FSU. He told me he looked at some of my stuff and he said, "You are going to be in Argosy Magazine." He said, "I can tell you that right now." And uh, sure enough, he was right. And uh, so I. I got this. Uh, my first story uh, was was titled "Shadow on Blue Water." This is uh, where we had a we had a a, a girl a girl bitten in half by a great white shark, and I think Peter Benchley probably got his idea for that in Jaws from from uh, my from my story because Benchley. Uh, Eventually, read a lot of my stuff, and uh, and in in uh, so I think so. But I beat him to it. I was the first one to bite a bite a woman in half with a great white shark. And uh, he anyway, um, uh, this story was originally titled Shadow on Blue Water, but they always changed my titles in Argosy, so it came out as Naked Lure in 1967, and uh, and uh, then I followed that up. With a um, with a story based upon my own experiences at the New Orleans 
Grand Isle Spearfishing Tournament. Now, every year for during that period, I don't know what they still do, but during that during that era, every year, the divers over in, in uh, Grand Isle, Louisiana, which is right there on the Gulf Coast, uh, yeah, the New Orleans Grand Isle Spearfishing Tournament, uh, divers came from all around the world for, for that. And uh, the reason why they, 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 this was so popular was Right off of Grand Isle are all these oil derricks, and and they're and, and of course they're you know they're out there in the in the uh, in the in well they're not shallow water. I mean even the ones close to shore they're they're 80 feet deep down to the bottom, but then they've got some out on the continental shelf that are that are uh, even deeper, uh, where they where the where the, where the structure of the rig goes down over over 150 feet. Uh, so fish, of course, swarm under these things, and uh, um, so this this spearfishing tournament is is a really for for that in that era. As I say, I don't know if they still do it, but in that era, it was it was a big thing for divers. And um, the uh, uh, so I went and uh, the uh, and actually I did get I did win a trophy. I got I got second place for bluefish. So I got one of these carved, carved mahogany diver trophies. It's a really beautiful thing. Uh, but um, actually, what the 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 real uh, well, they changed the title of my story was originally "Ride the Devil," and that was the that was the original title. They changed it to "Monster of Grand Isle," uh, and I had in my story uh, there, there was this huge, huge sea bass. That lived under one of these rigs, and and uh, there are a lot of sea bass, a lot of big giant sea bass live under these rigs, and uh, uh, but the biggest one was called El Old Sid. They called him Old Sid, uh, and he was rumored to to weigh a thousand over a thousand pounds, and uh, whether he did or not, I don't know, but I but that he he sure he sure ran like he was that that heavy, I'll tell you. But anyway. Uh, so, I had already managed to to boat a you know 150 pound sea bass back in back in in in, in uh, the Gulf. So I you know, I was I thought I thought I could you know I, I I had I had delusions of grandeur like the captain they have I was I was going to take a, I was going to find I oh Sid and I was going to get him now. The way you do this, though, is really kind of hairy. Um, you use a a CO2 kitty CO2 fire extinguisher, and instead of the uh, the, the little nozzle up at the top, you know, at the, at the pistol grip, like you have on a, on, you bend the pistol grip around, you, you angle it around, and then you 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 screw in a a um, a big long copper barrel. Big long tube barrel, and and that screws in. So then you clamp that uh, on onto the to the tank of the fire extinguisher, and then you could take a cold roll steel curtain rod and shove that all the way down in there. That's your that's your harpoon, and onto that you braise some loops. And then you use a lily iron, a, a bronze lily iron, very similar. It, it looks just exactly like 
the kind of thing that you would that you would try to stick in a whale, or Ahab would try to stick in a whale. Uh, we watched King Kong the other night, and uh, and this is this this lily iron is just about the same as that harpoon that they were just about to shoot the ape with, if you remember King Kong, and it goes on the end of your curtain rod, and then you got a you got a, a line that runs back from that cable steel cable. And that goes to a neoprene loop handle, which you wrap around your wrist and you hang on. So the idea is, is you put, is you 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 sneak up on the beast if you can, or find him or whatever. He sneaks up on you, and you shoot him, and you shoot him in the side. Plant that lily iron in there, and then of course immediately the spear is going to come out. And now you can you can take your gun and you can have a float on it. Let your gun you know. It, drop your gun and let the let the float run up so you can recover it, and then you hang on to your bridle and let that beast pull you all the way through the wreckage under the oil derrick. And this is cement pylons and and I beams and all kinds of it. And these guys, these Cajuns that do this, that, that perfected this particular method at Grand Isle, they wear wetsuits, but then they wear blue jeans over the wetsuits. And blue jean and you know denims over the wetsuits, to, you know to keep the wetsuits from and they're, 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 the flesh underneath from being ripped ripped apart when these when these big babies start going, and you know the and the and the the, the sea bass is going to go, he's going to go around uh, uh, one of the one of the pylons and try to wrap you around and and uh, and drag you through all this stuff, and and if he can. Well, the um, the upshot of all of this is yes, I did find old Sid. Yeah, I found him all right, and I shot him, and he gave me and he gave me a ride, and and I'll I'll never forget that. But <laughs> the but what happened was is that he he was going around two pylons while I was still going around one, and he pulled the barb out of himself. Which I understand from talking to the Cajuns that he does that. That he does that all the time. He's all covered with scars where he's where he's ripped. You know where these various barbs come out of. Yeah, it's like if this if this sounds like 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 Moby Dick and Ahab. Yeah, it was like that. <laughs> it was a, yeah, it was really something. So it made a. Uh, it made a, t- a really good story, and and uh, and and I created a fictitious character called Bradford. Bradford uh, it was my spear fisherman character for the story, but it, I was writing about myself, and uh, so that was Monster on Grand Isle, and uh, that uh, then then uh, after that after that I decided, and I was out in California by this time, and that, after that. I decided that I would uh, do what what all good adventure writers do is if you want to keep writing adventure stories, then you got to keep having adventures. And so after Monster Grand Isle was fairly successful, so I I uh, I decided to go down to Belize and uh, and hang out down there. And so I went down to Belize, and I didn't know anybody down there, but I just figured, you know, I'll get get down there with masks and fins, and and uh, and uh, you know, maybe maybe I can rent equipment, hopefully. And down I went, and and I ran into when I got down to Belize, that was the place, boy, that was the place for an adventure, an adventure story writer to go because they had some of the 
some of the greatest characters I've ever run into uh, down there. And uh, and one of them was an XUDT guy who had a converted Navy launch that he used as a dive boat. And he called the boat the Geek, Motor Vessel Geek. <laughs> and, he, and this guy, <laughs> this guy really, he was XUDT guy, and uh, he he was uh, he was really really a wonderful character, and uh, and so I used him. Obviously, I, I modeled my character and put the stories on him. And uh, we went out to the blue hole, and all we went out, we we dived Belize. We uh, he just, you know, I, 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 he said, hey, he said, I I like you, you know. Uh, let's uh, I'll take you out, and uh, and we'll go out and. And I said, well, what, what's it going to cost? He said, oh, just buy the gas. He says, buy the gas, buy the rum, and buy the orange juice to put the rum, to mix the rum with, and and the rest of it's on me. Now, he can't argue with that, with that. boy, that's terrific. So out we went, and I really got to know uh, Dick and, and, and all of his and all of his crew, uh, one-legged Roger and, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, some of the, the native guys and, and, and all and just had we just had a wonderful time and and uh learned about get a whole all the stories about smuggling and and uh and about uh you know the 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 politics and everything that goes into uh, into really getting the gen on on what it's like to, to live an adventurer's life in that area. So I came back uh and uh and I wrote uh the first of my uh the first of my Jack Morgan stories, because I turned I turned Skipper Dick of the Geek into uh, into uh, a character called Jack Morgan, and uh, so I did uh, Smuggler's Range in for Argosy, and uh, in about sixty, I think it was sixty-eight, and uh, and I followed that one up with uh, with another one called The Treasure of Ambergris K, which came out the next year, and uh, so I had and. Dick wanted me. Dick wanted me to come down. They were going to buy. They, they, they were going to buy a, 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 a uh, island in the middle of the Monkey River. Uh, and I wonder about the Monkey River is on the Guat border, which was uh, uh, that time. At that time, Guatemala was not a safe, not a very safe place to be. And uh, uh, Dick uh, wanted me to come down. They're going to. They're going to establish a di- hunting and a dive camp on this island. And uh, at the time, I had a girlfriend who wanted to go with me, and and uh, and oh, Dick was all yeah. Well, they didn't mind that, but but you know, and I was going to be their their publicity guy. You know, I obviously you know I was added in with Argosy Magazine, so so they figured that that I would be their you know one of the one of the divers and one of the uh, and all but but I'd also be their publicity link and they'd get this camp going, this dive and hunting camp. And I almost did, but uh I got to thinking that that there was you know, there was a couple of reasons why it wouldn't have been a good idea. Uh and I won't go into the reasons because the reasons are kind of personal but but uh, I have often regretted that. I don't, that would have been that would have really been quite an adventure, and I would have gotten a lot of stories out of it. But uh, but I let it go. And uh, one of the things I wish I now looking back on it, I wish I had done it. But uh, anyway, the uh, meanwhile, 
I got a, I was, I was, I was writing these uh, treatments for the Swanson Agency, and uh, and one of my treatments that I had written, by the way, a treatment is a story in advance of a of a screenplay. When you write a treatment, uh, it's in advance of a screenplay, and uh, and this is what my 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 agent, the senior agent at Swanson's who was also Steve McQueen's agent, by the way. And he told me, uh, uh, just write treatments. He said, you know, you've got a great imagination. You do, you know, you got an adventurer's background. Well, just write these treatments, and if we like them, then we'll encourage you to go ahead with a, with a screenplay. So I wrote a treatment for a story for a kind of a crime drama about uh, a blind woman, uh, a wealthy blind blind woman with a seeing eye dog that that they uh, that the bad guys get a hold of and and switch dogs on her and try to get, and try to get her killed by by uh, make it appear that she was killed by her own seeing eye dog and that was the idea for this thing called Beware of the Dog. Well, believe it or not, um, <laughs> in those days, studios would 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 actually option treatments today they won't but in those days they actually option a treatment and 20th century fox actually wanted to option beware of the dog they did and uh, my my agent though he says oh no 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 let's go for an independent production well that turned out to be a disaster and uh the, the guy that he had I mean, it just it just didn't work at all and meanwhile i was i was getting sick and that was his gallbladder situation that that I was misdiagnosed as an ulcer, and uh, so I I left. Uh, I well, I still kept in contact with with the agency, but but basically I I needed it. I I I got myself a job at this point with Shelby American as as a as a, an artist and a designer and and a and a technical illustrator. Basically, I did their installation drawings and. Uh, and uh, and also design some of their logos. So um, uh, meanwhile, I was getting, I was really getting uh, this terrible, uh, um, you know, pains that were misdiagnosed as an ulcer and actually was an atrophied gallbladder, and things were getting, you know, getting really, really bad. And uh, so that, of course, that led to, which I'm sure you all are aware of if you've been following our our uh, uh, programs that that uh, uh, I started hypnotizing myself, trying to get rid of the ulcer, and of course that eventually led to to um, me getting interested in ceremonial magic and what have you. And so when I recovered from this gallbladder thing, uh, that's when I when I started the OTA. And uh, but before that, uh, I was uh, you know I was still. I was still trying to to I was still trying to sell screenplays. I was still trying to sell stories, and uh, uh, but then then I began to concentrate. After that, I began to concentrate on the OTA and on getting that started, and uh, and 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 I had a career developed as an industrial artist. Shelby went out of business, but uh, but uh, um, meanwhile, though, I got I got work with. You know Lockheed, Douglas, and you know, and the big aerospace companies, and so so I had a I had a pretty good career going as a, as an illustrator, and uh, and meanwhile, um, 
Meanwhile, I, uh, uh, even while I was developing the OTA, I had uh, I had ideas, you know. I still and I'm still submitting stuff to Swanson's and still, uh, uh, you know, sending stuff to New York. But uh, I had uh, Argosy was gone by that time, and uh, uh, I had a, I had a, uh, a story that I had a novel that that I had been working on called Tower of Darkness, and uh, this was. Uh, really, it was a reprise of my own my own reprise of the old Four Feathers film about the the Sudan campaign in 1898, and, which I'd always loved as a kid. I really loved that Four Feathers film because I really identified with Harry Faversham. In fact, actually, I call some of my some of my early adventures in special forces and all that playing the Harry playing the Harry Faversham game. And, and those of you who have not seen Four Feathers, um, not the book so much, but the film, the original. Uh, Harry is a is a kid that grows up in a military family and and uh, in England, and and his um, his father and all their friends kind of terrify him with all these horrifying war stories about about all these young officers getting killed and and. Uh, and and you know and 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 what uh, and what a horrible thing it is to be cowardly and uh, you know and and uh, and and I you know I when I was a kid I really was kind of uncoordinated and I didn't do good, very well in sports and my dad was a great athlete in college and lettered and everything and he really wanted me to you know to to be a uh, to be a a champion football player and everything else, and I just, I just wasn't. I, in fact, I, I, I took up spearfishing. <laughs> I took up spearfishing to make up for the fact that I wasn't, wasn't particularly good at football, and, uh, and so I really identified with Harry Faversham, the kid that, that when it kept, comes time to go to the Sudan, he says, "No, I'm not going," and, and, uh, and uh, all of his friends give him, give him their, give him these white feathers, you know, like, like you're a coward, and. So he 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 becomes so despondent that he's that he's uh, that he goes and over there all by himself and becomes a secret agent and infiltrates and rescues all his friends and and uh, becomes a hero in the end. So I always I kind of identified with with um, I identified with Harry and I think when I when I volunteered for special forces I think I got a little bit of a Harry Faversham kind of a thing there uh, and. Uh, but so I, I wrote this. I wrote this novel, uh, Tower of Darkness. I, frankly, the first version of it wasn't very good. It was uh, way too too romanticized. But basically, it was about uh, some a character like Harry Faversham. Um, he was a uh, a British officer who who could uh, who like uh, Sir Francis Richard Francis Burton could speak Arabic and could get along with these people and and relate to them and all of his adventures. Um, and uh, you know, it's kind of like the old Gunga Din and and whatever. And but actually, I, it, it wasn't it wasn't very good, and I, and I couldn't. Uh, nobody seemed to want it in New York, so I put it on the shelf. Put it on the shelf until nine eleven, and then I thought, wait a minute, you know, this is now 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 maybe maybe it's time to take this thing and and rewrite it and make it a good story. And which I did, 
And uh, so I kept up, I kept up writing. And one of the things that one of the, the other uh, projects that I had at that time was a I kept in touch with Lynn Carter, and and uh, Lynn uh, Lynn um, actually Lynn helped me somewhat with the OTA because Lynn was a Lynn was quite an occult scholar, and uh, and as anybody who has read his version of the Necronomicon, you know that. But uh, uh, Lynn was encouraging me. To do some science, to do some science fantasy, do do some do some uh, heroic fantasy or, or or science fiction, and so I tried. I wrote this thing uh, uh, about uh, uh, a, 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 a created my own imaginary world, and uh, and wrote this, uh, this this short novel called uh, War Made of Food. And that was about this warrior princess who who uh, rides a, a pterodactyl, and and uh, that all this sounds familiar. Well, it's been done over and over and over again, even before I did it this time. But uh, and she's uh, you know t- she's a pterodactyl riding, uh, tattooed, uh, naked Amazon kind of uh, uh, war maid, and uh, and and Lynn thought, oh, this is great, but. But well, it needed a lot of work, so um, and Lynn helped me, and I kept working on this thing. And uh, actually, I copyrighted the War Made of Food version of it before before it uh, it um, you know before I actually published it. But uh, weirdly enough, one of the big comic book chains, uh, when it was circulating around New York, one of the big comic book chains plagiarized it, and uh, I caught it and got and stopped it. Got and it stopped them in mid in mid plage and and uh, the uh, but I couldn't sell it and, I, and Lynn couldn't sell it and Lynn Lynn tried and tried and tried to sell the thing and he acted as my agent but at that time uh, Lynn Carter was on the outs uh, he was on the outs because he was because the feminists had taken over. Uh, the 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 editorial acquisitions departments of these publishers in New York had been taken over by literally taken over by feminists acquisition ed, editors and and they were they this was they they were realizing at this point and this is true that that there were just as many um, just as many women reading fantasy and and you know stuff like the Tolkien stories as there were men. And yet, these all this stuff had been written from a male viewpoint. So, for a while there, um, you couldn't you couldn't uh, write anything written from a male viewpoint, especially if it had if it had any sexual aspect to it or anything like that. It was just a no no. They 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 wouldn't even look at it. And so, Lynn, who had been who had been Mr. Fantasy and and had been the uh, the top of the, the top of the line. He he couldn't even he couldn't sell anything, and not even his own stuff, much less mine. So <laughs> this was really unfortunate, but but that's the way things were in those days. And uh, anyway, I uh, I uh, put uh, I put more made of food aside, and and uh, and uh, then. Uh, after after 9/11, um, that's when 
that I I decided, well, actually, it was actually before 9-11 that I started working on on, on a war made of Thune again, seriously. And I, I had another, I have another agent lady out here that thought she could, so she could sell. I had also too, I, I wanted to rebuild after, after our electronics company that I worked for, for nine years, ran their art department and, and all, and it folded up. And after that, I decided to really, really try, try rebuilding my writing career. So I went out to Ponape Island and those of you who've seen Beyond the Maria, you can see me coming out of the out of the tomb and, and, and out there at Nanbadol, that ruined city. I went out there to to uh, Pompey Island with the idea of getting material for another adventure story, just like I had done with uh, in, in Belize. You know, go there, have an adventure, come back and write and write your story. So I went out there to Pompey Island. Which, which, by the way, had been the scene. What inspired that? It had been the, the scene for Abraham Merritt's classic fantasy adventure, The Moon Pool. That's where it started on Pompey Island, on the in those ruins. So I thought, well, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to do something. Find those ruins. I know they're out there. So find the ruins and have an have an have an adventure, and then come back and 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 write. Uh, not not another knockoff on Moonpool, but but another you know another kind of another story based in that same area, and uh, so I did. Came back and wrote up the um, uh, and wrote up a, a novel called Hell on Heaven's Reef, and uh, an adventure novel and diving and everything. But it's a typical uh, typical kind of a you know kind of like. The, the, the kind of like my Belize stories, except out in the South Pacific, and uh, and then I got a lady agent here in, in Los Angeles uh, who thought she could she could um, she could sell this, and uh, and she couldn't. And the same thing, it it was the same situation, I'm sure, because I write from a from a male point of view, and and and. Uh, from a male point of view, writing an adventure story, sex is a part of your adventure story. You're you're you have a female lead uh, who is who who should be in in a typical male adventure story. She ought to be beautiful and sexy and 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 you know responsive and all of that. And 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 you write this this these things written you know, pretty much from a male point of view. Now, but what had happened, you see. Uh, I I didn't want to realize that back in the in the 1930s and early 40s, uh, all of this pulp magazine stuff that I had cut my teeth on when I was a kid was read by men and boys and teenage boys and and, and young men. They were the reader. They were the readership. They were the ones who were the readership. Now, curiously enough. The same type of audience are the ones that go to all these action movies. These these action, you know, all these these comic book Marvel comic book uh, motion pictures. They their main their main uh, uh, ticket uh, the ticket buyers for these films are teenage boys, and so it, it it's finally gotten back to that uh, to that again, but. It, it went, we went through a period, especially with fiction, we went through a period 
where when when Lynn, uh, you know, finally, you know, couldn't even sell anything, and we went through a period where 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 the women completely dominated uh, what had once been a field that were where where you had a male readership and a male writership, and this is the way it had been. So uh, anyway, my but my Helen Evans Reef was that kind of a story, and 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 uh, and and my my female agent could not sell it, and but then I went on and I finished uh, um, War Made of Foon, which which was uh, War Made of Foon. Uh, I had a new title, Drill Master. And actually, I gave the title "The Awakener," but then somebody else ran off of that title and published it. So I decided to retitle it "Drill Master." And my agent, she couldn't sell that one either. And uh, we almost did. We almost got an old ex-Special Forces uh, guy who had a who had a publishing company, and he was going to buy it. But then his company folded up <laughs> right before we could make the deal, and that was the end of that. And uh, but. Um, uh, but we, I ended up publishing Drill Master myself, and also that uh, Tower of Darkness, the Sudan novel. And I published them under my own company called Maelstrom Press. And both these novels, by the way, from the Tower of Darkness and Drill Master, are both available from Amazon right now. And and you know, I know this is shameless self promotion, but if you want to read them, you just go on Amazon and and you know uh, you know Drillmaster Pope Runyon, and it'll bring you right to it, and you can one click it, and uh, and the same thing with the, from the Tower of Darkness. Now from the Tower of Darkness and Drill and and uh, uh, from the Tower of Darkness and Drillmaster. Um, are, are both, uh, you know, published by Maelstrom, which is my own, my own personal uh, company, and uh, and uh, and and Drillmaster is is rather well illustrated. I, you know, I, I I'm my artwork is is comic book style or pulp magazine style. It looks like the illustrations in 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 uh, Drillmaster. They're kind of sexy, and uh, and they're. Um, uh, but they are, they look like the same sort of illustrations you'd see in that kind of a story in the old amazing stories or planet stories. And that's 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 the way they were. And uh, so Drillmaster is is one that I I really really highly recommend, uh, and especially for for magicians because there's a lot of it takes place on another planet, but but this. I, I created my own astrology for the planet, and, and my own uh, three-level environment for the planet, which is uh, really, you know, the, the 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 way the planet is constructed uh, is is very magical. And they even use Enochian. And so, um, um, Drillmaster is is one that I, uh, from a from a hermetic point of view, there's a lot of magic in it, and uh, and. And there's quite an interesting uh, uh, political and uh, allegory. So, um, in fact, what I'd like to do is uh, read uh, the afterword uh, for Drillmaster, just a little bit of it, just to show you what more there is in this than just entertainment. Because, frankly, I'm uh, I'm uh, not 
a great fan of globalization, and neither am I a great and and also I uh, I kind of agree with Dan Brown's Inferno. I had a story, you know, Dan Brown's Inferno um, is is uh, he presents an alternative to the population explosion, you know, which is which is dooming our planet. And, and dooming dooming our planet and the human race. And Dan Brown's Inferno, um, he proposes his villain supposedly is going to um, is going to spread a disease all in in these in these swarming population centers that will make that will make every uh, only one pe- person in three will be able to procreate after they after this epidemic. That's his solution to the problem, and that way we could get the population of the, the planet under control. I had an idea like this that I was going to write up for the seventh ray called uh, a story uh, like similar to this, and, and unfortunately uh, Brown Brown beat me to it. But but uh, my story, my disease was going to be super mumps, and super mumps, of course, would sterilize every male that got it, and and. Uh, and so I, I I had that the idea of super mumps and and Brown came up with uh, with his with his particular uh, take on the same idea. Now in Drillmaster we do and something similar in in, in because uh, the the way this story is constructed most of the problems on this planet are very similar to the problems we're having right now and politically and everything else it's 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 a it's a it's a it's a metaphor. I'm um, I'm going to go back here to this particular section uh, in my afterward describing what I'm talking about. Even though the earlier war made of Thune was not originally intended to emphasize an allegorical message regarding our earthly population explosion and its threat to the environment, the underlying symbolic theme was there from its first inception. In the present version of this of the book. I have developed this subliminal element into a major storyline. In this respect, Drillmaster functions like a mirror held up to our own earthly situation. Jaskamore's dispassionate Jaskamore is an artificial intelligence. Jaskamore's dispassionate observations on the Thunian human condition are not unlike the findings of the first Menza Commission on the population explosion here on Earth. So disturbing, their conclusions were so disturbing that afterwards, Menza voluntarily downgraded itself to a social club. In 20 years, the already depleted resources of our own planet will be expected to support 10 billion people, while our concepts of progress and humanitarianism mandate that an average third world family should be able to produce as much garbage and pollution as its American counterpart. Back in 1922, H.G. Wells came out with a novelized version of his utopian master plan for planet Earth called Men Like Gods. Today, this book is virtually unobtainable. In this work, Wells foresaw our self-destructive population explosion as being augmented by our technological progress. Even then, he recognized the coming horror of Soviet Marxism. But in 1922, Wells was still an idealist who believed 
that universal education would eventually improve human nature in the aggregate. In 1939, Ortega de Gasset, in his classic study, Revolt of the Masses, seriously challenged that idea. And a few years later, Messrs. Hitler, Himmler, and Heydrich laid it to the final rest when they took the best educated young men in one of the world's most civilized countries and turned them into a horde of demons. So, where does this leave us today? Frankly, there are no easy answers to this monumental problem. But one thing is certain, we can't hide from it. And as, few, and as a few of our wiser voices are beginning to suggest, unrestrained globalization may be accelerating the syndrome. In this sense, Drillmaster may be more than an entertainment. It might prompt us to ask, who are our trimorphians? In other words, our intellectual and spiritual leaders. And where is our Joskimor? Our master, our master computer that that tells us what's going on and what we might want to do about it. And uh, after I retired from the professional world of technical publications and commercial graphics in 1993, I established CHS Publications as an outreach project for our church, distributing my, my nonfiction books: The Book of Solomon's Magic, Secrets of the Golden Dawn Cipher Manuscript, Seasonal Rites of Baal Astarte, and the documentary video Magic of Solomon, etc. All on philosophical religious themes. I derived a great deal of satisfaction from this venture. It allowed me to utilize a whole spectrum of professional skills I had perfected in my previous business career. Now I was publishing my own work, and I found it more fulfilling than the formal former process of writing a book and waiting helplessly and often hopelessly while an agent peddled my manuscript to people I had never seen in a city I don't even like to visit, and that's New York. After a few years of my small press experience, I yearned to revive my first love, romantic adventure fiction. I recalled the example of one of my favorite authors during my teenage years, Edgar Rice Burroughs. He didn't like dealing with New York either. He started a very successful self-publishing venture, Edgar Rice Burroughs Incorporated. Following his example, I have established Maelstrom Press. Drillmaster is Maelstrom's first offering, and we welcome your comments on the book. Now, uh, I wish I could do like uh, Bill Zink did. <laughs> I gave a lecture one time on one of Bill Zink's Power uh, Power Weekends and on the Cipher Manuscript book, and I brought along about uh, about 20 copies of the book. And uh, at the end of the lecture, I said, "Well, I have I have copies of the book here. If anyone would like to purchase them," and nobody said anything. And Zink turned around to his to to the, to all of them sitting in their chairs, and he said, "People." You need this book. And they all got up with $20 bills in their hands and checks in their hands, and I sold out immediately. And I even took some orders. So I wish I could do that and, and you know, with Drillmaster, because, frankly, Drillmaster has a lot to say. And it, and it, it, and it's, and it is magical. And then we got, like I said, we got a Nogian magic in here, and we've got, we've got uh, a very good, um, a very good story. So, uh, I don't save a self-promotion, but you can go on Amazon. You can buy it with one click. And, uh, and you know, uh, that would, you know, kind of warm the cockles of my heart, if you would. And and for heaven's sake, once you do, 
put a good review on it. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and you know, and in a way, uh, also, we don't want to forget from the Tower of Darkness because, frankly, uh, I started really seriously working on from the Tower of Darkness after 9-11 because I thought, well, doggone it, uh, uh, this is this is sort of my little my little bit uh, you know my little answer to the war on terror you know let's look back and let's let's look back at at at, at the same thing going on over a hundred years ago and uh, so that one too is is quite good and we have in coming up from Maelstrom Press hopefully this year we'll have uh, Helen Evans Reef hopefully and we'll also uh, we'll also have uh, uh, our 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 film that we're still trying to get going. It will be in the form of an illustrated novel like Drillmaster, Baron Black Wolf, Dogs of God, and that's on, of course, the the uh, you know the Mad Baron of Mongolia, and uh, that one is another one of of typical typical adventure story with occult and supernatural aspects to it. So. Uh, that's that's the uh, that's the story of uh, well, what was it the yellow kid used to say in the comic books? That's the story of my sweet life. <laughs> uh, but anyway, no, that's uh, that should give you a pretty good idea of my writing career and then and now and and whatever and and like I say, it uh, one thing I do guarantee you that. Uh, I, I, I guarantee you to like it, but I, I tell you, you will be entertained, and even in some cases, you might you might even learn a few things. So uh, next week, um, next week, what I, I'm going I'm to uh, do something uh, that we haven't done before, and uh, uh, we've kind of shied away from from it but but I'm going to do something next week that I wanted to do for a long time. I'm going to do a show about about the misuse of Christian charity and uh Christian compassion. One of my very dear friends latched on to the expression that of the weaponizing of compassion. Compassion has been weaponized. And not only has compassion been weaponized, but tolerance has been weaponized. We need to take a look at some of these monstrous Christian heresies, starting with the Illuminati. That's a monstrous Christian heresy. From the from the Illuminati comes the Bolsheviks, another monstrous Christian heresy. And we get today we get we get uh, we get so much of this weaponizing and misuse and actually and manipulation based upon these otherwise philosophically and spiritually beautiful ideas. And I think we need to take a look at this, and especially with what's going on in the country right now. So next week, we're going to have a show on ethics and magical ethics and, and, uh, and uh, spiritual ethics and, and get some of this tolerance for some of these hideous, hideous, horrible acts that are going on. So next week, I'm going to kick over the traces a little bit and and speak freely. And I have a little bit tonight, you know, with the, with my pointing out that Drillmaster is essentially, it challenges globalization as, as an answer to 
uh, as something that's good for humanity. So until next week, good magic and be well, and we'll see you then.